right. Well, in Luke 16, not the text we're looking at this morning, but in Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable about a man named Lazarus and a rich man. And in Luke 16, the rich man was clothed in luxury, while a poor man named Lazarus was clothed in sores all over his body that the dogs would lick. Every day the rich man feasted extravagantly, while Lazarus, we're told, longed just for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table as he begged at the city's gate. If you pause the parable right there and ask, would you rather be the rich man or Lazarus? My guess is every one of us would say the rich man. But the parable goes on. And Jesus tells how the rich and the poor man die about the same time. And it's then that their fortunes are reversed. Lazarus is comforted in paradise while the rich man suffers in the agony of hell. Filled with regret, the rich man would give anything to go back and to live differently. But it's too late. And so he asked that Lazarus might be sent back to his five brothers to warn them. But in response, he's told, they have Moses and the prophets, which is the way of saying they have the word of God. Let them hear them. Jesus' parable in Luke 16 is a chilling parable. It's a reminder that life is not like a video game where if you fall into the the trap, you can just hit the reset button and have a do-over. There are no do-overs for us. And so if somebody comes to us with a bird's-eye perspective on life and reality and tells us the trajectory that we're on and where it's going to end, we would be wise to listen. We would be fools to plug our ears. That warning, which the rich man longed to give his brothers, is the warning and the encouragement that God gives us today. In his word. So let me encourage you to grab your Bible and open up with me to the book of James. James chapter 5. As we continue on in our study of this letter. James chapter 5. Let me begin by reading the first six verses of James chapter 5. And if you're new to the Bible... The larger number in your Bible, that's the that's a chapter 5. And then the smaller numbers that follow are the verses. So we're looking at the first six verses of that chapter. This is what James writes. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. 
and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is one of those texts that I want to remind you, I'm the mailman. This is God's word. It's a hard text. It's been hard for me to read as I look into my own heart this week. But part of what James is doing in James 5, 1 through 6 is he's building on what he's been saying in chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, he talks about this contrast between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. And the world's wisdom in 3, 13 through 18 is described as a way of life that is driven by envy and selfish ambition. In other words, if we adopt the world's value system, significance and value is determined by how we compare with other people, how we compete. And so when we put ourselves first in this competitive value system, it becomes a life that where it's everybody for themselves. Each person demanding their selfish desire in a dog-eat-dog world. And so it's not surprising, as we see in chapter 4, that this creates quarrels and fights among people, and it leaves us in a position of enmity, hostility with God. So what's the solution? James is very simple. The solution, the answer, is humility. James 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so James after that, has shown us what humility looks like before God in verses 7 through 10. What humility looks like in our relationships and speech in verses 11 and 12. And what humility looks like in our planning in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. But today, James exposes one more version of pride, calling us to humility. The pride that can come from wealth. Look at verse 1 again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We have to pause here and ask, okay, who are the rich that James is addressing? He says, come now, you rich. Who's he talking to? Because James doesn't convict or condemn everybody who's rich. The Bible does not say that being rich in and of itself is a sin. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 10, the rich are believers. They're called brothers. And if you look, if you back up and see a more expansive view of Scripture, many of the heroes of the faith are rich. People like Abraham or Joseph or Job or David or the women who supported Jesus' ministry. So even though James has been addressing Christians, calling them brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, over and over, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he pauses... He's still talking to the Christians, but it's more like they're overhearing what he's saying to the non-believing rich. Specifically, James is condemning the rich who have oppressed the church. We've already seen this back in chapter 2, verse 6. They oppress the church, they oppress these believers in order to indulge their selfishness. And so the language in verse 1 is not a joke. The language in verse 1 is damning. 
weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That second word, to howl, is a gut-wrenching word that describes the cry of terror when someone is indicted on the final day of judgment. Even the word itself, howl, sounds terrifying. Friends, this is God's word. And I think we're meant to pause and let the the terror of what he's saying in verse 1 just sink in to our hearts for a moment. But it raises a second question. If if James is writing to the church, this church is scattered. We've talked about that in chapter 1. If if he's addressing Christians, why does he then pause to address non-believing rich who are oppressing the church? Two simple reasons. First, to comfort the believers who've been wronged and are waiting for justice. We're going to see that in verse 4. And second, to warn the church. In other words, if I'm correcting one of my sons for their disobedience and my other son happens to see it or hear it, he would be wise to listen and learn from his brother's error. So he doesn't make the same mistake. Friends, with all the money with all that money can buy us and all the security that it promises us in this life, James understands that we're tempted to envy the wealthy, that we're tempted to follow the worldly wealthy in their example of self-indulgence. He understands that. He probably felt that himself. And so we need to stop and recognize that. As we walk through this text, I think it's very easy for us to think of people like Jeff Benzos or Bill Gates or the Michael Jordans of this world with their billions and billions of dollars and excuse ourselves because we're not rich like them. But James does not define rich as having enough money to buy a yacht or go on a fancy vacation. James describes the poor as those who lack the resources that are necessary to survive. And then he puts the rich in contrast to that. And so we may have to pinch our pennies in order to keep our budget. But as Randy Alcorn says in his excellent book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, he says, statistically, if you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house that keeps the weather out, and own a reliable means of transportation, then you are in among the top 15% of the world's wealthy. So when we define it biblically or globally, like Randy Alcorn does, most of us are going to fall into James' category then of the rich. The prayer that we heard at the beginning of the service in Proverbs 30, verse 8, says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. It's a reminder for us that poverty should never be romanticized. Poverty is not pretty when you read about it in the book of Proverbs. But I think for the most part, we don't need reminders of the dangers that come with poverty. It's the dangers that come with being rich that we tend to overlook. It's the dangers that come with wealth that we need reminders of. And so with that in mind, we do well to listen not only to the encouragement that James offers in chapter 5, but also its warning 
and it's instruction for us on how we think about money and possessions. I don't really have points this morning, so I'm going to give you my big idea up front, okay? The big idea of the text is this. Christians, Christian hope endures difficult days by seeing the end that God has for the wicked. Christian hope endures difficult days by seeing the end that God has for the wicked. That's basically what James is saying in these first six verses. Remember the, the rich man in Luke 16. He was asking to have someone sent to his brothers to warn them before it's too late. Again, church, this is God's warning, his merciful warning for us. Verse 1 is like stepping into a time machine that shows us the future end of, the, of, these, of those who trust their wealth. And so if we ask, in light of verse 1, how do they get there? How do they get to this place where they're howling and, and, and weeping and, and the miseries that's coming upon them? How do they get there? Well, then what James does in verses 2 through 6 is pulls back the curtain to the divine courtroom. And he's going to show us three reasons why they got there. They're guilty of hoarding. That's in verses 2 through 3. They're guilty of fraud. That's verse 4. And they're guilty of self-indulgence. That's verses 5 and 6. Hoarding, fraud, and self-indulgence. So let's look at that first divine indictment of hoarding in verse 2 and 3. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Just, just pause for a second and listen to the courtroom language that you hear in verse 3. These will be, this will be evidence against you. That's a courtroom term. And so as we peek into the divine courtroom, this first charge against this unrighteous rich is that of hoarding. They have lots of expensive garments, but they don't wear them. They just kind of sit in the drawer in order to be food for the moths. They have lots of gold and silver, but instead of using that gold and silver for good, they just stockpile it and stockpile it in their accounts just to sit there. This past week, we had a bunch of bananas on our countertop, and if you have bananas on the countertop and they sit too long, you know what happens. They turn brown and nasty. I like a good banana, but it, it, a banana is one of those things where you either use it or you lose it, right? If you hold on to a stockpile of bananas too long, they're going to turn nasty and rotten, the word that James uses here. They, the only thing they're useful for is food for the flies or be thrown in the garbage, in the same way, James is making the point that wealth has an expiration date. Wealth is not meant to be stockpiled. That's not God's design. It's not meant to be hoarded. Like a banana, your wealth and your possessions can rot. John Calvin put it this way. He said, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths. But on the contrary, He has designed them as aids and helps to human life. That's what they're there for. 
Now hold on. Who is James to tell us how to use our hard-earned money? Look again at the end of verse 3. He says, You have laid up treasure in the last days. What's he mean by last days there? In the New Testament, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's in the New Testament, the last days refer to the time between Jesus' first coming, which happened 2,000 two years ago when he came to die and rise again. It, 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 the last days are the, the period of time between his first coming and his promised second coming. So the point is, is that we live in the last days right now. Because Jesus has promised to return. We don't know when he's going to come back. He could come back before this sermon is finished. He could come back in the next 10 years. We don't know, but he's coming. We live in the last days. And so on that last day, the final day, when Jesus returns and takes his seat on the throne as a judge, we will answer to him. He is the judge. And so... We need to ask ourselves, okay, if we're going to answer to God, what's God's purpose for us in these last days? 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice that God's delay between his, Jesus' first coming and His second coming, God's delay is expressed as God's patience. His delay is, is there for the purpose of providing us time to share the gospel. It provides us the time for those who have not heard the gospel to hear it and be saved. That's, that's the purpose. That's God's purpose. And so as a result, if that's God's purpose, we should put our home, our car, our grill, our fridge, our money everything that God has given us, we should put it to work in loving others, in helping those who are in need, and put our money and possessions to work to share the gospel, both here in Maryland and around the world. These are the last days. But as so we hear the indictment about hoarding, stockpiling wealth that we don't use or need and but why are we tempted to do this? I think one reason is because of status. The status that money and possessions bring. If we adapt the world's way of living, if we live by the world's wisdom that our value is determined by comparison and competition, then money and possessions become status symbols. If you wear a certain brand of shoes, if you drive a certain type of car, if you own a certain type of house, then people begin to see you as, well, that's somebody. That's somebody. They got value. They have significance according to the world. And that feels good. We like that. And so we keep accumulating. We keep stockpiling because we want to keep up and prop up that image. Status. A second reason I think we're tempted to hoard, though, is because of security. If your car breaks down, if you get sick and have lots of bills that you have to pay, if the roof on your house needs replacing, those unexpected bills can feel devastating if you don't have any money in the bank. 
But if you have money in the bank, a pretty hefty cushion, well, then those unexpected bills come and you're like, well, I can handle it. I got money. I'll just dip into that cushion and pay it. And listen, that's not always wrong. If you read the book of Proverbs, the Bible speaks about the wisdom of saving and the wisdom of anticipating future needs. Read Proverbs 21, verse 20, for example. But saving turns into sinful hoarding when we trust wealth instead of God. Saving turns into sinful hoarding when we trust wealth instead of God for our status or our security. It's a hard issue. As Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, you cannot serve two masters. If you trust your wealth, you are not trusting Jesus. Jesus does not allow that. There's no straddling the fence here. He says you'll, you'll love one and hate the other. Friends, wealth that's hoarded and stockpiled, it can provide a temporary refuge today. It does that. But on the day of judgment, it becomes a liability. Verse 3 says that unused, stockpiled gold that we have hoarded so that we don't have to trust God will eat your flesh like fire. That's an image of God's judgment. Friends, God is not impressed with our portfolios. He's not impressed with how successful we might be in our businesses. Wealth will not deliver any of us on the day of judgment. So James is saying, look, 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 look. Don't merely look at the short-term benefits of wealth. Yes, they're there, but don't just see that. Pray that God would give us an eternal perspective when it comes to money and possessions because these are the last days. If Christ returns today, may we not be, un- may we not be ashamed with how we're using the wealth that He has given us. So ask yourself this afternoon, ask yourself, are there ways that you're tempted to find refuge in your bank account? Pray about that. Talk about it. Do you in some way feel the pull of this world to define your significance or your status by what you own? That's how the world operates. Do you feel that pull? Are there ways that you succumb to that? Friends, all that we have, everything that we have, every good and perfect gift comes down from Above, all that we have and all that we are is given to us by God. Not for the purpose of making us independent of Him, but in order that we might rely on Him as we trust Him in our generosity. He gives so that we can be generous and trust Him in our generosity. This generosity that we're called to is how we store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Tony preached from Luke 12 in the parable of the foolish, of the fool, the rich fool. And in that parable, Jesus warned, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. 
indictment number one for these non-believing rich is hoarding. Indictment number two is fraud. Look at verse four again. Verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here's the scenario that James is painting in verse 4. He describes the wealthy landowner who hires out these day laborers to come and mow the field. To bring in the harvest. So they, they make an agreement. You do this work, we'll pay you this amount. These day laborers come, they do the job. But in the end, the landowner refuses to pay. We're not told why, what reasoning he has or she has. But whatever reason they come up with, James calls it fraud. In other words, they're cheating. Their workers, they're robbing from their workers because they had this agreement, this, this, this wage set up and they're not giving it. Now you gotta remember in, in the first century, in the first century that James is writing in, for day laborers, most of the day laborers were poor. They were poverty stricken. And so not being paid was serious. If they didn't get paid that day, that likely meant they didn't eat that day. Meanwhile, these rich landowners who are defrauding are defrauding, notice when they're doing it, during the harvest time. That means as all their crops come in and their barns are full, that is the very time that they're withholding what their workers need to survive. Their barns are full. Meanwhile, their workers who they're defrauding are starving to death. It's a simple calculus. If less for you means more for me, then I'm willing to take advantage of you so that I can have more. And what could the poor do in response? The rich and the poor in James' day understood that the money is what controlled the courts. There's nothing they could do. Now, this wasn't a hypothetical scenario that James is painting. Back in James chapter 2, verse 6, we read, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? And so the, the, the scenario that James describes of, of day laborers being robbed by an employer and having no recourse, this is not hypothetical. There were folks in the church that were listening to James that had experienced what he was describing. They understood the pain of crying out for justice, but knowing the courts would not hear them. And so the indictment of the rich, this scathing indictment of the rich in verse 4, is actually meant for the encouragement of those who are waiting for justice. It's a reminder that there is one who hears their cries. There is one who will one day bring perfect justice. The wages that were kept back by fraud cried out. Just as the blood of Abel cried out from the ground in Genesis 4. 
And these day laborers who were defrauded, their cries, even though they were ignored by the human courts, James says, they have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These landowners assumed that they could get away with their fraud. What could the poor do? They were powerless to stop them. But boy, were they wrong. The Lord of hosts is a name for God that means the God who commands an army. Try going up against the creator of the universe who commands his army. You're going to lose. That's the encouragement to those who are waiting for justice. And so the, the poor don't need to resort to repaying evil with evil. The poor can repay evil with good, as Paul says in Romans 12. They can trust the Lord of hosts as they wait for justice because He hears their cries. And friends, the same is true for us. Brothers and sisters, if you have been wronged, if you have suffered because of a miscarriage of justice in this world, this text, verse 4, is meant to be an encouragement that there is a God who sees. There is a God who hears your cries. There is a God who will make right what is wrong in your life. Praise God for that. Take comfort in that. But we also do well to consider the other side of James' indictment. To put ourselves in the shoes of the rich. Are there ways, church, are there ways that we, like these rich, are, are willing or have been willing to disadvantage others because it means gain for us? Or very practically, friends, if you're a boss... If you're a manager, if you're an employer, if you're involved in making policies that set wages, verse 4 is meant to, you're meant to ask yourself in light of verse 4, are you making sure that the, way, the workers who work for you are getting a fair wage? That's a good application for verse 4. Now we can move on to verse 5, but I think before we move on to verse 5, I want us to consider one more thing. I want us to consider verse 4 in light of our nation's history. What comes to your mind when you hear verse 4? Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. Where does that come to mind when you think of our nation's history? Slavery. Africans being treated as people made not in the likeness of God, but as property, sold and exploited. Wages being kept back by landowners by fraud. And the courts in that day there to keep them enslaved, not to provide justice. Now this slavery is a, is a, is a horrible mar on our nation's history. And it was years ago. Praise God, it's not, it's, not, it's, it's not the same today. But So why would we bring up this history today? Well, there was a day not long ago when some of the members of First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro, and they can tell you these stories, there was a day not too long ago when they were not allowed to attend certain schools, eat at certain restaurants, or drink from certain water fountains. 
Centuries of mistreatment and fraud don't simply vanish into thin air with a couple of civil rights legislation. It's an issue of the heart. And those, those, those realities have ongoing consequences that last into today. They have ongoing consequences for African Americans today. Now, let me just acknowledge this elephant in the room. I understand that these issues have been politicized as of late. And when somebody talks about these issues in the church, one side may suspect the abandonment of the gospel for social issues, and another side may, may see the failure of the church to address the issue properly. These issues are complex. And I admit that I don't understand all the issues that are involved in these conversations as much as I'm trying. I, I do know that they call for careful thinking, careful, thoughtful, biblical dialogue. We have to define our terms. Sometimes somebody uses a term, and they don't mean what we mean. So we have to slow down and say, what do you mean by this word? What, how do you define that? And we need to be patient, because this is a long, ongoing conversation. On one hand, there's the danger of saying too much, where I could be overly prescriptive and steer us into legalism. I see that. But on the other hand, there's the danger of saying too little and steering us into the place where we end up being hearers of the word and not doers. So I bring up our nation's history not to make a political point. We can be thankful that we live where we live and yet also be honest about our nation's history. I say this not to make a political point, but in an effort to try to wrestle with what God is saying in James 5 and its implications for what it means for us today. These are complex issues. So where do we go from here as a church then? Let me suggest a good place for us to start is back in chapter 2, verse 8, where James holds up the royal law. Love, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, this command that he gives in chapter 2, verse 8, is in the context where James is denouncing the sin of partiality, of showing favoritism based on externals such as wealth or ethnicity. Okay, so we get the command, but what's it then look like for us to love each other as James describes in the royal law? Well, I find it instructive that in chapter 5, verse 4, God, the Lord of hosts, hears. He hears the cries of those who have been wronged. God is not too busy. God is not indifferent. Our God is a God who cares. Who are we, then, to be indifferent or to ignore the pain and cries of a brother or sister in our family? Friends, as those who've been shown mercy, how much more should we be those who care and show mercy to each other? Yes, every one of us at First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro is a sinner. And sin does distort our perspective on things. What's more, if I line up ten of us in a room, no two members at First Baptist have the identical experience. 
And I just want to say, not only is that okay, I think that's actually beneficial. It's helpful for us. Because it's easy when everybody agrees to just kind of coast. But when we are called to live in love as a family and we have different perspectives, it helps us to slow down and wrestle with these things. And what's more, it's not our experience that determines what's true. It's God's Word. It's God's revelation that tells us what's true. And so we sit together under the authority, not of our experiences, but God's Word. And so as we get to know people in this church, other members who look different than us, they have different backgrounds than us, when we really get to know them and we really start to live life together, we not only learn how to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, but we begin to see ourselves more clearly as sinners saved by God's amazing grace. Brothers and sisters, united in Christ. Amen. Indictment number one, hoarding. Indictment number two, fraud. Indictment number three, self-indulgence. This last indictment comes in verses five and six. Look at verse five. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He, the righteous person, does not resist you. We're seeing bad examples and the inappropriate use of wealth in James 5. So let me just pause and take a quick detour. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul lists three appropriate uses of wealth. It's a helpful detour. What are the three appropriate uses of wealth, Paul? Number one, to provide for basic needs like food, shelter, and clothing. That's 1 Timothy 6, verse 8. Use number two, to enjoy God's gifts. Enjoy a good meal, enjoy a nice vacation, enjoy God's gifts. That's 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Reason number three, our appropriate use of wealth number three, to be generous and to share with those in need. That's 1 Timothy 6, 18. That's 1 Timothy 6, 8, 6, 17, and 6, 18. So in light of the Bible's clear articulation of the appropriate use of wealth. It's appropriate for us to pause and say, James is not saying that you should never buy something nice and you should never enjoy a nice meal. That would be to contradict 1 Timothy 6.17. The self-indulgence that he mentions in verse 5 is a self-centered demand for luxury coupled with an uncaring attitude for the needs of others. I demand luxury, and I don't care if you don't get what you need to survive today. That's what he's talking about. It's not the occasional treat or meal out. It's a way of life that is so focused on getting and getting and getting. For me that we're willing to get that luxury even at another person's expense. I think that's what James is getting at in verse 6 when he says that you have murdered. 
I think very likely he's referring to that murder in a figurative way. The point is that self-denial in order to care for the poor is out of the question for these people because that would mean they would not have the money to pay for their luxuries. And, and also, by withholding wages that they've agreed to pay their workers, they make a bigger profit. But then, in a, as a result, they condemn them to poverty and starvation. Friends, if we see the chief end of man as me, my pleasure, and me getting the nicest things, it's very easy to ignore those who are in need and say, not my problem. But think about what James is saying. Imagine for a moment a cow or a steer living in a slaughterhouse. If a cow could think, it might regard itself as fortunate to be indoors, surrounded by mounds of hay, no longer having to forage for skimpy grass outside under the heat of the sun. This is great all the while being oblivious to its impending doom. James is saying, in the same way these rich live in luxury and in self-indulgence, thinking, we've made it. But in verse 5, James says, no, you are fattening yourself like a steer for the day of slaughter. Friends, the rich who hoard in the last days, who take advantage of others through fraud in order to get ahead, and those who live in self-indulgence with no concern for others are trusting their wealth for security and status. They're not trusting God. And so when James pulls back the curtain to give us a peek into the future and we see their end, their end, we hear them weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. For those who have suffered injustice under their prou- the proud, calloused exploitation of these rich, these words provide encouragement and hope that God sees, that God cares, that God will make it right, that God will establish justice if these rich do not repent of their exploitation. But for any reader, I think these are hard and sobering words. It's been hard for me to read this week. Because it's not, it's very easy for me, and I suppose it's easy for you to remember some time when you, like myself, have hoarded or ignored the needs of others or put yourself first. And so when you know that and recognize that, you may feel the guilt or the burden of that. You may feel the burden of that right now. You listen to this text and you're like, good grief, I, I, I see myself in these rich and how they're living. But friends, if that's the case, verse 6 has good news. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, we don't know if James had a particular person in mind, but we do know this. Jesus is the only one who's actually innocent. (laughs) He is the one who's good, who has the title righteous, and it's fitting. He was righteous, but he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver. He did not resist those who arrested him unjustly and hung him on a cross. 
He did not resist, not because he couldn't stop them. All he had to do is say the word and God would send legions of angels to stop them. He didn't resist because of love. The good news of the gospel is that in love, Christ died for our sins. On the cross, Jesus cried out in agony so that we would be spared from howling under the misery of God's judgment. Christ was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Christ died and on the third day he rose again to show us once and for all that his work of redemption is complete, it's finished, it's paid in full. All that we have to do is receive it. Friends, God is not a judge who accepts bribes. Money will not deliver you on the final day of judgment. Only Christ can. James 5 is God's merciful warning. He shows us the end of those who trust their wealth instead of God. He shows us that future end so that we can change. We can repent before it's too late. That we can trust in Christ before it's too late. So friends, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you're listening online and you're not yet a follower of Christ, the response is to humble yourself, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus. He gave his life that we might be forgiven and accepted by God. So look to him. Rely on him. Rest in him. And be rich in him toward God. Let's pray together.